This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. A lawyer, a manager, and a label guy walk into a bar. No, it's not a joke. It's the third and final panel from Motorco Music Hall. In this session, I spoke with industry folks about how they do their business in the new streaming economy. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. On today's show, we wrap up my trilogy of panels from the lovely Motorco Music Hall in Durham, North Carolina, with an in-depth talk about the world of streaming. How has it affected everyone's business? It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. We're talking to Jason Taylor, Rich DeYoung, Sean Nolan, Wilson Fuller, Alex Mayolo, and Martin Anderson. I'm going to start out today by having everybody go down the line in the panel and introduce themselves, please, starting with Rich. I am Rich DeYoung. I work for Sound Exchange out of Washington, D.C. My name is Alex Mayolo, and I'm a writer a musician's advocate, festival consultant, musician, and studio owner. My name is Sean Nolan. I am a attorney practicing for 10 years now. And before that, I was a band manager and worked at a couple of record labels around the country. I'm uh, Martin Anderson, manager at Middle West Management, and I live in uh, Durham, North Carolina. I am uh, Jason Taylor, and I work at Red Eye, based in Hillsboro, North Carolina. My name is Wilson Fuller, and I work at Merge Records a couple blocks away from here. All right. So this is our our big final panel where we're going to talk about all the intense issues of the day. And I was going to kick it off by just anecdotally telling you guys that when Spotify came to the U.S. market... I was extremely skeptical because if you'll all remember, in those days we were talking about per stream rate and everybody was very incensed at the idea that we were going to go from a 99 cent download on iTunes to this 0.0043 cents or whatever the ridiculous tiny fraction of a penny number was. And we all were like, that's devaluing music and I'm not going to do it. So I kept my catalog, much to Jason's chagrin, off of Spotify for the first year. And then I had a touring artist come back from tour, come to my office and say, Portia, every single night on tour, kids were coming up to our table saying, why is your music not on Spotify? I really wanted to be able to listen to it on Spotify. So I was like, oh, okay, so it must be time. So about a year later, we put up the whole catalog on Spotify. And now I have to say it's been unbelievable, right? And I think everyone would agree the last few years of streaming has really been a game changer for the industry, sort of pulled us out of our sad tailspin that we were in for a few years. However... I feel like we should not get comfortable with this state of affairs because anything can happen. And every single day in the news, things are happening. I mean, some big moves have been happening this week with Pandora, and we can talk about that later. But I did want everybody to just sort of start by talking about how has streaming affected your business? Well, I mean, streaming is our business. So SoundExchange wouldn't be around 
without streaming. It's basically what we pay royalties on. Like I said before in the previous panel, what we do is we collect licensing fees for digital streaming airplay from the service providers, XM Series, Pandora, Yahoo, and then we take that money and then we pay out the feature performers and the master sound recording owners who get that airplay. So that's basically what our business is. We're trying to branch out a little bit. We're starting to do songwriter publishing royalties. We just bought a uh, PRO in Canada called... CMRRA. CMRRA, right, which deals with songwriter publishing. Sound Exchange has also set up a, an ISRC database, which makes reporting both from the service provider and from the artist perspective and the label owners reporting a lot easier. We've also set up a new royalty processing system that makes turnaround of the royalties that we take in and pay out a lot easier and a lot more efficient. Turnaround is about 45 days or so. And we basically pay out on a monthly basis now, which no other PRO does. I think the big thing has changed for me. It's hard for me to say my business because the closest thing I have to that is recording and writing about music. But the main thing that I see is that it's cracked open what has traditionally been a UK and US market run by men. I see more bands from other countries getting attention, and I see more bands with women in them getting more attention, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that music that is good is finding its audience, finally, and we have a different set of gatekeepers some of whom are just people sitting on this panel, some of them are you, and you just pass them around to your friends. You hear something, you pass it around, and the only thing keeping it from getting popular, other than the fact there's a lot of noise out there, is if the song isn't good. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that has been interesting to watch is how in the last few years, we've seen this whole development of people saying, wow, this lost classic record, have you heard this thing from 1968? Like the example I always use is SF Sorrow by The Pretty Things. Have you heard this record? Yeah, why, didn't I never, why did I never hear this? And it's like, well, because it couldn't get to your ears. It was locked up because of all these other things. And now with nothing being out of print anymore and it costing pretty much nothing to get your stuff online, good music is finding its ears. And that makes my life as a recordist and as a journalist easier and more satisfying. Yeah, for me, it's it's changed things drastically because we went from at least legally speaking from what was a very defined system to all these other avenues of exploitation of music and you know, back in sort of the wild west days. I mean, I think we're still in it to a degree, but there were so many even even downloading. We were having to come up with customs, whether it be royalty rates or how things were going to be presented, what sort of rights were going to be involved with that, and how we were going to parse it up. And so it was, there's, and there's always going to be this sort of push and pull as to, between the tech companies and the music companies. I feel like, you know, that wall is coming down to a degree because we all realize finally that we need one another. But there was a very, very much sort of a war that was going on. And so we needed to develop these sort of customary 
contractual obligations around these new ways of, of consuming music. And so everything from recording agreements, which may not have addressed those particular types of media very well, and so you had gray areas about how something would be accounted, how something, who would receive what percentage of that revenue between artists and labels, to where, how could we change our contracts to consider the new media? And it used to be there was just this new media clause that were in all the contracts. It was just sort of, hey, if it's not a record, it's not a CD, it's not a tape, it's this, and we're gonna pay you less because there's a barrier to entry, there's development that has to go into it. And, and so now we really, as attorneys, have to give some thought as to how we are preparing documents between these various parties with, a, with an eye towards the future. Yeah, I mean, I think that for a lot of my artists, obviously the financial aspects of it came as the first hit. And I think that made a lot of people very reticent to, to buy into it. But I think that like as we've seen, Alex spoke to just the concept of it breaking down a lot of walls between like consumers and the music, you know, and, and I've seen with my artists a lot, we're seeing people show up to shows that, you know, heard it on some Spotify playlist, their friends shared it with them. And so in that way, I, I've my thinking around it has kind of shifted back to this is maybe like the new DIY or something. You know what I mean? It, it, it's it's getting to people. And I think that the output, it's not like records need to be like marketed into oblivion as much anymore. It kind of feels like for us, we put the, the music out there and, and people hear it, share it with their friends and come out to shows and, and interact with it financially in other ways. So I think it's still early to know, you know, exactly how I feel about it. But it is, you know, I'm coming around in that way of seeing seeing it benefit our artists on that end. It's like almost a better question is what, what how haven't things changed? You know, it's it's an entirely different landscape. I mean, you know, streaming has, has effectively somewhat revolutionized the music industry. For better or worse remains yet to be seen. But, you know, I think something I continue to focus on with streaming is it's in its infancy, something like 16% of music consumers have actually adopted streaming. And it goes really beyond the digital sphere because it's it's impacting physical sales in a, in a positive way, at least for, you know, the group of labels and artists that we're working with where, you know, we keep using the word gatekeeper, you know, removing those. You know, Porsche, as you know, like independent music tends to be more discoverable on these platforms. So, you know, it, 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 it sort of allows labels to cut through the noise, be discovered. Indies definitely benefit from that. Yeah, it's it's changed everything from how we release a record, the planning, the pre-release singles, to physical sales, driving vinyl. Yeah. I think for me on a label side, we've had to spend significant amounts of time educating our artists on the change from transactional model to the consumption model and ways to use data, where these per stream rates are coming from, how the deals work. Because downloads, it was pretty obvious how it works. It's similar to a sales model. And now we're making the artists think about how they can get people's attention for significant amounts of time and not just one-off transactions. This panel has is sort of indie label heavy, which is good. I'm very happy about that. I definitely, I think probably for our labels, all of our labels, one of the biggest changes with streaming has been that, like on the previous panel, we talked about sort of release date used to be this hard and fast thing. It's really changed that because after release date, 
releases have a very, very long life, especially catalog. So uh, streaming has changed the, the makeup of catalog sales so significantly, it's kind of shocking. Are you guys finding that as well, Wilson? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you're seeing new life going into some of these older releases that hadn't been moving much until, but people are still listening to them. Obviously, there's huge fan bases out there for them that now we're continuing to make money from those existing fans instead of always needing to find new people to get new sales. Right. And that kind of speaks to what I was talking about last time, too, about the uh, super serving the super fan, you know, being kind of the new market, the new model, because if you've got, you know, I don't know, pick a number, any number, and those, you know, those are the fans that, you know, you can sell to. Well, man, they really want you to sell to them. They want deluxe packages. They want extras. They want all sorts of stuff. And, and so it changes the entire landscape of how you can put a release out. Exactly. And that, that speaks to what you talked about earlier about the 90-10 rule, which I, I'm fascinated by. To reiterate, for some of you who weren't here earlier, Portia said that 90% of the people who listen to music don't even really like music that much. It's just sort of background noise for them. It's just this thing that soundtracks what they this do. It's my personal theory. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm signing on to it. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think when we talk about the decline in record sales, we're engaging in a form of nostalgia that's specious. I think we have this idea that people used to go out and buy records because they really... You know, they didn't want to, want to let the Rolling Stones down. Like, I, I've got to go out and buy this record, or, you know, this band I love is just really going to be bummed out with me. And that's not the case, I don't think. I mean, I have no scientific data on this, but I've watched it for a long time. I'm very interested in it, and I have this notion that music on vinyl or CD was the on-demand format of its day. And if you didn't want to just sit around listening to the radio, waiting for your favorite Pablo Cruz song to come on, or whatever, you went out and bought, bought the record. And then, of course, you found out that the rest of the record sucked, but you had the song that you wanted, and you could listen to that song over and over again. So when people were allowed to, well, first they weren't allowed to, but when people had access to music in this unlimited Wild West way, it's not like one day they just lost their moral compass <laughs> and just said, like, sweet, I don't have to pay for this anymore. I don't think they ever really would have, frankly, had they been given the chance. So these 10%, basically everybody in this room, we're the nerds, you know, we're the people who want to buy it because we love our bands. We're the people that bands need to speak to. We're the ones who, as you say, we're the ones who buy the box sets. We're the ones who go to the shows. We're the ones who by the shirt and the limited edition hot dog that they're selling at the show. And so as artists, I think it's a really great time to engage your fans and to speak to them directly in a way that you've never been able to before. And I think streaming is a huge part of that. And that's one of the reasons I'm so optimistic about it. I think like from a revenue perspective, it's become, you know, the way to make money these days as opposed, you know, Nobody buys CDs anymore, and nobody really buys downloads anymore. So artists and labels are basically having to rely on their streaming revenue, you know, to, to make up for the money that they would have made, you know, selling CDs, you know, or, uh, or selling downloads. One of the things that hasn't come up on the panel today, though, that I think is really important, and it ties into what you do, 
is if you're going to do this, if you're going to participate in this world where you can go in and record a record, mix it, send it off online to get it mastered in 24 hours, if you do that, put it up on Spotify for between free and $50. All of this is really awesome, but not enough people are doing real basic stuff like getting their metadata in order so he can pay you. Right, and that's why we set up the IRSRC database because it standardizes all the reporting when it comes to tracks that are reported to us and, that, and the tracks that the artists and the labels are, are claiming. Yeah, so that's the type of thing I think that we have to deal with these days is we have to know these things at management. You were talking about earlier, you know, like, I just want to be an artist, man. You know, like, that, those days are done, for better or for worse. And, and some of the things that you need to learn are things that make it really easy for that guy to get you paid. The, the one thing, though, I would say about what you had said previously is that, you know, from an independent level, I think we do still very much pride ourselves in, you know, it's... I don't know if it necessarily is the best way to think about it, but but we're still a pretty album-oriented faction of the music business, comparatively speaking. And so the notion that you know you would have purchased an album that was you know Marquee Moon or something like that, and that it would only be one song, didn't really. I don't know if that necessarily translates over to sort of the the type of listeners that we are trying to cater to typically. And so in that regard i think that it has we've seen a slip and i you know there's still obviously we're going through this process and seeing how over over time the long tail if it's actually going to pan out that we would you know that our artists would be making as much money streaming as they would selling a you know just a single album you know there's there's certain bands that i like is, is a wolf eyes record who may cater to a particular type of listener are they listening to that type of music regularly on streaming, or are they probably going to be a physical buyer? Or is the streaming really not going to be beneficial for that type of artist, where it really is more of a sign of, I think, who you are and might not be, you know, you're not probably not a morning Wolf Eyes listener. So I think there's still a lot of it depends on the type of music that you're talking about. And so I think that, you know, streaming is certainly beneficial. I, I like the fact that, you know, we can have music released in the middle of an album cycle that might not be the album, that might be a recording of, of a cover, but you can continue the marketing side of things by having these things exist and do it quickly and efficiently. But I think there are negatives to some of the band, the type of music that may be out there for certain, certain types of musicians. I think that's absolutely true. It depends on the type of music and who the band is. I mean, we still work with labels who are you know, upwards of 90% physical sales. It's just their customer. It's the fans of the music. They're going to buy heavy physical. So you know, I think it's really important, particularly in the independent sphere, that you know, artists continue to create great records. One of my biggest fears is that this just all moves to creating the one great song to get onto a playlist, and that's the music business forevermore, and that is not uh, the indie label listener. Well, Jason, that is the music business if you're in pop. <laughs> well, thank goodness I deal nothing and with we're that. We're not in pop. Like, nobody up here is in right, pop. Right, but basically everything's moved from album to, like, a track-based level in terms of, you know, that's what's true. So it's 1964 about. again. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. The little forty fives. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and you got to be careful about what you read in the press about these things because they'll have you believe 
that's what the industry is. Same thing with you know the death of the CD, where we talked about the death of the CD for at least as long as the CD was relevant. And the crazy part about the death of the CD is, I just was talking to someone, I can't remember who it was, I think it was somebody from Buzz Angle, about how the CD is surprisingly not dead for the simple reason that there's still so many cars out there that have CD players in them. And people, it's just easier for people to just stick their CDs in if they already have them in the car than it is to sit there and figure out Sirius XM or whatever. Yeah, that and $40 vinyl. I mean, if cassettes aren't dead, CDs aren't going to be dead. Cassettes you know? are back, baby. There's still people <laughs> driving around, plenty of people who have cassette decks in their car. I mean, I kn- that coming back blew my mind. I'd Burger never records, ever man. thought that was Burger records happen. are geniuses. Yeah, it's yeah. The, and it's the kids, too, that yeah. you know, they didn't even grow up with that. I keep waiting for the eight track. was Riff Dad by Kinski. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Want an even closer look at issues we talk about on the show? Our monthly newsletter will keep you informed about news, upcoming events, episodes, and more. You'll also have access to exclusive offers and behind-the-scenes looks. Sign up at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and win a Future of What t-shirt. After our show, check out the Friend or Foe, that's F-A-U-X, comedy podcast. Hosted by Devlin Wilder, this oddball show features interviews, games, and more with guests like Mad TV's Chelsea Davison, singer-songwriter Kina Granis, and comedy genius Weird Al Yankovic. Hear new episodes of Friend or Foe every Monday on friendorfoepod.com, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Jason Taylor, Rich DeYoung, Sean Nolan, Wilson Fuller, Alex Mayolo, and Martin Anderson. So something that I think is particularly interesting, and this is a show about the music business, so we do have to talk business at some point, is about this whole streaming thing, is that it has made the behind-the-scenes work that ever, all of us do exponentially harder and I think Jason's probably a good person to talk to about this because you know even just like me as a label 
It's like, okay, now our deal includes digital. So you guys have to figure out all this stuff that's out there and then give me the information in some way that I can use. Yeah, we had one digital person in the beginning who literally sat in a room and ripped the music from vinyl to get it delivered to iTunes. You know, things have clearly changed. I don't have a handy number here, but I would say upwards of a dozen people at Red Eye now focusing specifically on the digital aspect from the marketing to the, well, it's way more than 12 now that I think about it. But, you know, everything from ingesting the content, delivering it out, working the marketing side, working the sales side, analyzing the data, leading up to the release to make sure, you know, you're putting your focus in the right areas, merging tour markets, et cetera. So, yeah, they're, they're, you know, every distributor out there probably has a small army of people working just on digital, every single aspect. Because this is one of those places where tech moves faster than our little tiny brains. And then we have to try to figure out and explain because then we all have to explain to artists what's actually happening. Like you Which is out. the hardest. And that's really hard to do. Sometimes multiple times, which is okay. That's okay. I'll say it again. It takes years. It takes years. Sometimes. Hey, listen, it took me a really long time to figure out publishing, right? It usually takes everyone a really long time to figure out publishing. One of the things I think is really cool about what Sound Exchange is doing is that you guys have been able to be really nimble because you were created to handle non-interactive streaming radio, the royalties that came from that. And then the music industry turned around and oh, oh, and also to get paid at a statutory rate, right, which was set by a CRB and there's a whole nine yards of that. Then the music industry turned around and started doing all these direct deals with the service providers. Some companies would have just thrown their hands up and cried and gone home. But you guys said, hey, guess what? We'll administer those direct deals for you. So you're leveraging this fantastic database of clean ISRC metadata to your advantage and our advantage. I mean, SoundExchange is extremely good for majors and indies and artists. Yeah, so people are doing direct deals, you know, the service providers are doing direct deals with, with the labels, but we will still provide a service to administer those deals. We're not collecting as much money off of that, but we still, you know, have our fingers in the pot in terms of like working those deals. And like I said, also, we're kind of branching out. We're doing uh, songwriter publishing royalties too. We're hoping also to get into other management of other media like photography, things like that. We just built a whole new system at SoundExchange that's able to process this stuff a lot faster than any, any other PRO. And that's why we're welcoming and looking to, to process these new media, you know, that have a potential of earning royalties. Right. Sean, you're a music lawyer. Now, do you work mainly with artists, managers? It's across the board. I have a couple of labels, a couple of producers, and the, but a ton of performing artists and recording artists, yeah. So what are, what are you seeing? Like, what are your big challenges right now in, in this new digital marketplace? Well, a lot of it, it's kind of boring, but it's the <laughs> number of deals. I mean, everybody wants some aspect of new material, whether it be, you know, an NPR station or whether it's Pitchfork or whether it's a festival. Every festival these days wants to live stream and maybe have some archive of whatever they've performed. And so... These are not lucrative deals. These are typically gratis deals. And so I spend an inordinate amount of time, and this is definitely one of the challenges of, of working with labels and artists, in trying to explain why this, this particular deal may or may not be good for your business model. You know, personally, I don't like the fact that there's a ton of garbage 
that's sort of cluttering up the space out there. And a lot of it's because many of these deals, they either don't have approval rights or people are really lax with their approval for a particular content. And it, it just makes it very difficult because if you're not getting anything out of it other than like just getting your, your noise into the white noise, what's the point, you know? So I, I, they're almost, there's so much going on out there. There seems to be at times this idea that like, well, if we don't do it, we're missing the boat. We need to have more, we need to have our name out there more. And this is a way to do that. And I, and I just feel like a lot of times the quality is just not good. So I, I like it whenever a band is able to get to a particular level where they can be a little more discerning about the types of things that they want to do. You know, getting them there is, is obviously half the battle. But for me, I look at a lot of deals that I end up having to, you know, go toe to toe with the label about whether this is a good idea. Are we going to get those rights back as, as the record label? Are we going to get those rights back as the artist later? Do we even care? I mean, 10 years from now, is it going to matter that, that I've got the Sylvanesso Primavera, you know, live rights from the, the show last year? It's pretty hot, though. It is. <laughs> it is. This is sexy stuff. So, you know, that's the type of stuff that, that has definitely become a challenge. And then obviously keeping up with, it's funny, I, I meet with the folks at, at Merge fairly regularly as well as my other clients and, and just say, hey, what do you see coming down the pike? What is, what is happening that might not fit into the box that we, that we all feel comfortable with, or at least more comfortable, so that I can start to think about how this could potentially be detrimental from a legal perspective? Wilson, do you want to speak to, I mean, just thinking about kind of a little bit about what Sean is saying about the dropping the rock into the ocean of the internet, you know? I mean, yeah. I, I feel like there is that aspect of this. It's like everything we put out, instead of being like, da-da, and no one's, everyone's like so excited because it's the only thing to listen to. It's more like clunk, and then it's just gone. Yeah, there really is so much out there that we have to be careful not to, that we're not competing with our own bands, that we're not competing with our actual records with some live sessions that they've done that are some great live sessions, but our bands aren't going to make any revenue from them. Which is also a really similar thing for videos. You know, I mean, videos mm -hmm. are another aspect of this industry that took a massive dive, even though it's still really important to have videos. Videos are great content, as they say, which is horrific, but... You know, they're an important thing to have because that's such a great way for bands to interact with their fans. Fans love to see a band, you know, in a video or even more like a cool video that you remember for years. And yet there's just not the budgets anymore. Yeah. And now we're edging towards talking about the value gap from YouTube and how. Let's talk about it. Back at the per stream rates, what we're seeing from YouTube is so much less than what we get from one of the subscription services or all of the subscription services essentially. And Jason, so you look like you're poised to say something, talk about the value <laughs> gap. Come on. I mean, Wilson, you know, absolutely right. It's a huge value gap. It, it absolutely pays a paltry sum. You know, that can come up if you have a breakthrough and expensive advertising gets start and laid over the top. Those scenarios are few and far between in the independent world for sure. But you know, on top of that, I, I think we all get the sense that it's been set up in a way that it's extremely difficult to even take your content down. You have to hire an army of people literally to manage your own copyright because YouTube exists in this sort of gray area. 
Well, and that's exactly why the value gap exists is because Absolutely. it is so difficult. I mean, the whole, the whole, for those that don't know, the reason this kind of came about many, many years ago before YouTube started the content ID system they developed so you can get paid something when your music is uploaded and there's just like some sort of starburst visual going on behind it and you've got you know someone that downloaded an entire album was because of the DMCA, which is a part of the Copyright Act. And essentially it was part of the DMCA said that YouTube, other ISPs could have a safe harbor so that you know they wouldn't be responsible for copyright infringement by third party works or something that wasn't relevant to their their business model. And that was back in nineteen ninety eight that that became effective. So you know we're Copyright law moves very slowly. Unfortunately, contracts and technology move very quickly. And so what happened is so many people tried to go through the DMCA system and the takedown notice system, which is pretty clearly spelled out. And so they would take something down and then it would pop right back up. And it just wasn't, you know, they referred to it as whack-a-mole. And it just wasn't effective to get this stuff down. And so essentially YouTube said, well, you know, you can play this game or you can enter into business with us legitimately and we'll, we'll give you 45% of what we're bringing in. Well, all these other companies are giving 70%, but they said, we'll do this or you can play whack-a-mole for the rest of your friggin' life. And so they, there's, it's sort of like you do this or you can not make any money on this stuff that we're doing. That was, that was their, I mean, and legally they can do that currently. So that's why it exists, and that's why so many people, when you, when you see a lot of articles about this, they talk about how DMCA is really just, it's, it's made, it's artificially lowered the per streaming rates for people because of this, because you're basically competing with free, not really just above free. And the real, the real bummer about this is actually it's an issue of consent. So artists, the problem with the YouTube thing is more that artists don't get to say no. They don't have the option. You can't, there's nothing you can do. People can use, anyone can put your music up on YouTube and there's literally nothing you can do except monetize it via content ID. That's your only choice. I'd like to preface what I'm getting ready to say by saying that I agree with all of this. It's absolutely true. YouTube, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty distressing situation. And compensation is not where it needs to be. I think we all agree on that, right? But one thing that is often lost in this conversation from the artist's perspective is the same technologies that go into making these bad things happen, like the YouTubization of the music industry. And the poor compensation currently from the streaming services, are the, it's the exact same technology that allows you to record a record for a fraction of the cost that you used to be able to do it, the wave file. So the wave file made file trading happen, which devalued music in its own way. The wave file made it so people could burn discs at home. The wave file also made Pro Tools happen and GarageBand and all these other things that allow people to make records that actually can compete in a way that maybe I mean, we love Guided by Voices records, you know, but those things weren't going to get on the radio. And some of the stuff that people are doing on laptops, I mean, I always use Tame Impala as an example. Those, he's done all right. Well, he had to pay Dave Fridman eventually, yeah, but he had to get to Dave Fridman eventually by, making his, by being able to make a record. 
And he could do that for very little money in his parents' garage on a broken computer. And you can shoot content on your iPhone and you can pass things around and be creative like you were talking about earlier. That's the big challenge now is how to use these tools that you have as an artist to out-create everybody else around you. So I'm not happy with how YouTube functions. I don't like the fact that you have to fight hard to tell somebody else what they can do with your art. I hate that. But on the flip side of it, we do have some very positive things available to us that we can do to, as artists to set ourselves apart from other artists that cost us almost nothing. And that is a revolution. Oh, I think it's been, I think, I mean, the fact that these sort of formats exist now is fantastic. I think what is a challenge for me on an everyday basis and probably, you know, the digital marketing staffs of many labels and management and whatever, it are these things that we're speaking about. You know, I, I wouldn't personally want to go back to the day of just these very limited ways of, of getting through the various gates to have bands have success. I totally agree with that. It's a lot more open, you know, <laughs> I probably wouldn't be able to practice law in Chapel Hill without, you know, the fact that this exists. So yeah, I, I agree with that. Some very good things have come of this, obviously. I have a question, like how do artists and labels monetize YouTube Airplay? Because SoundExchange doesn't cover it because it's considered interactive and we don't cover anything interactive. You have to lay ads on it on YouTube, so and and they pay direct. They they pay direct to the artist and the label. They they pay well for us. It's the distributor per play, uh, and then that gets parsed out through accounting. Yeah, they'll pay the labels and then the publishers for the composition side. But there's also like a really complicated thing that you don't get to see. There's you know certain things at certain times of the day and certain territories get paid at different rates, and those are all opaque. So it's pretty. It's not very transparent at all. Extremely, uh, yeah, yeah. Extremely, and it depends on the ad too, right? I mean, all the CPMs yeah. for the particular exactly. ad. I mean, it's and YouTube pays you directly. You don't go through any kind of PRO or anything. No, they pay you directly. Yeah, exactly. Although most people, I mean, I certainly have a, I have a company that does it for me because they actually understand what's going on, and that's another thing. And I, I'm not up on this as much as I should be, but I believe. You're not actually allowed to look at your own backend with YouTube. Like you have to have somebody who's been to YouTube University to actually get in. I'm not. There's such a thing. I swear to God, who has access to look at your backend? Otherwise, back you end, can't get right. in there. Who, who is acting as a sort of de facto PRO for YouTube for you? Who? No, who, no one. Well, no, this, you, no, well, this, you were uh, just a saying a company called Quarter Lab does it what's, for us. What's it called? Quarter Lab. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. I think that's. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that either. Yeah. <laughs> and we have direct access to the YouTube CMS, but we have gone through the, the class for it. See? So YouTube you. It's real. Learn something yeah. every day on the future of what? He's a, he's a professor in AdSense over it, there. It's real. <laughs> and, and, uh, unlike a typical you, it can go forever. <laughs> it's not just four years. You have to get recertified over and over and over again. Yeah. Which is good because you have to be in the YouTube CMS forever to get anything done. YouTube continuing ed.
That was Noonan by Marnie Stern. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Support for The Future of What? comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it? Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail-order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Jason Taylor, Rich DeYoung, Sean Nolan, Wilson Fuller, Alex Mayolo, and Martin Anderson. Question. Yeah, I was going to say, we have some questions. I'd like everyone to have an opportunity to ask questions, so do we want to have someone come up? I have a question about, one, thank you, Sound Exchange, so much for, because your reporting is so digitized, I now look at my regular PRO statements and say, how come I'm not getting paid for all this stuff that actually Sound Exchange is catching because it's all computerized? And then I go, well, how come, like, you know, BMI and SOCAN, all these things are still doing paper logs? And, like, surely that's good for, for indie labels with artists that are sort of more commercially marginal. You know, surely we must be saying, how come we're still getting PRO reporting that's so ad hoc and so paper-based? Because I think it would make a big difference to indie artists. But which leads me to, the, like, as a Canadian, like, I get neighboring rights, which is the sound recording rights. And when I get something played in Sweden, that money actually makes it to me. Whereas my American artist friends, that money just stays on the table and disappears. Do we think we're ever going to get neighboring right collection in America? You mean for, for terrestrial airplay? Yeah, or? for terrestrial. That's part of the legislative thing that's going on, the effort, you know, fair play, fair pay, which is the current bill in Congress. You know, that's part of that is, is this whole idea of we're not collecting that money for ourselves or other people. So when, uh, when foreign artists come over here, they don't get any money. But if we, you know, ec- and we're a net exporter in America of culture and music. So it's like we go over there and we do get that money over there. Yeah, but it seems they ridiculous. They hold it for us because there's no reciprocity. There's no s- statute in the law that requires terrestrial radio stations here in the U.S. to pay the performer. Yes. Okay? They pay the writer but not the performer. And we're trying to get that changed. Yeah, we've been working on that a lot. And, you know, it's a question of question mark, right? It could happen or it could not happen. It's been As like, the landscape been, changes, yeah, it's been yeah, a long it's been, time. It's been, in, it's been, like, in the works for years to get that changed. Thanks yeah. a lot. You guys are the best panel. Like, everyone today is great, but this is a fantastic panel. Thank you. I mean, so, so, like, a, a good example is, like, if you're, you know, if you're listening, like, 94.7 and you hear Aretha Franklin you know, doing respect. She doesn't get paid for that because she didn't write the song. Otis Redding wrote the song. So Otis Redding's estate gets the royalties for that, but Aretha Franklin doesn't. Now, it's different for digital streaming because there's a provision in, in, in the streaming law where both the artist and the writer gets paid, and we pay the, the performer, you know, who actually performs the song. ASCAP, BM, BMI, CSAC pay the writer. Yeah, the existence of sound exchange is part of the part of the reason that we're having some success in that area because they set the precedent for digital performance royalties. So it's since it's it makes no sense. It's like if we get digital performance royalties, why wouldn't we get terrestrial performance royalties? So that's a good argument on our side, but on the other side we have the National Association of Broadcasters who are just going, "We're so poor, it's not fair," even though they could buy and sell all of us. 
yeah. But one thing I would say just uh, is if I could sort of pitch this a little bit, but the Future of Music Coalition website has some pretty great charts on how the revenue flows from various media. And in fact, uh, it's, it's Future of Music Coalition money flow chart or something like that. And it's really great. It breaks down exactly who gets what, where you, you know, where you might go to collect that. So if you're just a, an artist, you don't have anyone that knows this stuff, you can really educate yourself on that site, in my opinion. Futureofmusic.org. There's a lot of good information on there. It's been collected f since 2001, and the organization was started by people from Simple Machines, the record label, Jenny Toomey and Kristen Thompson. So they have wanted people to be educated about this stuff for a long, long time. And there's a treasure trove of information there for you, and I hope you all use it. Next question. Sorry, I got nervous and let someone else go before me. I was curious about, I guess, user statistics, or in this case, consumer statistics. If you're receiving them from, for instance, Spotify, if SoundExchange is looking at any of this, or is it different with regard to YouTube? Are you not getting consumer statistics with regard to who is viewing the video, or if, for instance, if you're going through the class and getting access to the CMS, is that, I guess, opening the amount of data or metadata even that you're getting access to? You certainly have more information if you have direct access than if you don't, but the information, the data you're getting from YouTube is a little messier than what's being provided from a subscription service. Because I would be curious if you're using any of that data in order, for instance, for booking for bands, if it's, for instance, within a certain demographic or within a certain geography area of who is listening to this. So. I mean, with SoundExchange, you know, whenever you get payment, you get a comprehensive statement that basically spells out, like, who played your song and, and when and what date or whatever. Yeah. What are some of the things specifically, I mean, I feel like I've read a lot about this and I don't do this day to day. What are some of the things that Spotify and maybe some of the other streaming businesses have done to increase your awareness of where things are being streamed and what type of user it is and that sort of thing? Has it been helpful? Yeah, and it's, I would say it's getting better and we anticipate it'll get a little better. I mean, it's still not where it needs to be. You know, the more transparency we have, the more we can provide to the labels, down to the managers, the artists, uh, the, the smarter and better everybody's going to get because of that. You know, Spotify has an open API, so, you know, a lot of stuff that you might be looking for is going to be in there. It takes the people that know how to pull that information out and get it displayed in a way that makes any kind of sense. But we're not, you know, Spotify's a good one. Uh, Apple's started to provide that level of detail as well. So th those are sort of the two, you know, biggest fish in the sea, maybe outside of YouTube in the streaming world. But, and, you know, the good thing is you get that, you know, within 24 to 48 hours. So it's, it's really actionable information that you can take and do something with it quickly. Martin, do you use that kind of data, you know, for your bands in terms of planning shows and tours and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. We do. You know, it especially has been helpful for us internationally. You know, when we're looking at, you know, a band has X amount of time to spend touring in Europe and really looking at the markets where do we make it to Copenhagen or cut out the Nordics, like that kind of thing. Or when we're trying to break into like, you know, the South American markets, Mexico City, stuff like that. That's where we look at it the most. But yeah, I mean, we, we absolutely use that to, to route tours and, and really focus on, on the markets where we know the band is getting the most visibility and the most interaction. Um, that'll usually translate to those ticket sales. It's a really beautiful thing. It really is because, you know, before all of this, you're just taking shots in the dark. Like, I'm supposed to go to Chicago. I'm supposed to go to New York, L.A., et cetera. Whereas now, 
you might be, we really got to go to Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah, who knew? Bloomington. Yeah. It, it, it's a place. It's the same thing Let's with sales, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing with sales, though. I mean, I, you know, in the 90s, there were so many stories about bands showing up in Bloomington <laughs> or wherever, Columbus, and going, wow, we just had the best show of our life in Columbus. And then everybody went to the record store the next day to try to buy a record, and it wasn't there. And so, I mean, you're, you're our connection band. Yeah, completely. Band, yeah, you know, no, that, that, was, that was always the, the big bummer, is you'd be like, everybody loved it, they can't buy it, and, you know, mail order so, people didn't. So there has to be some sort of value in the idea that somebody who's, like, drunk on this concert that they've seen, they're just completely amped on it, can go home and binge on this stuff, and, and that in itself creates a super fan, which has to be monetizable in some other way in the future, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the notion of the super fan, particularly for the type of music that, that we are promoting, is huge. I mean, I, you know, I don't do it as much now, but even as little as five years ago, I was telling bands, like, please just put out some sort of mailing list, sign up, or some find some electronic way to do it. I don't know. I don't know you kids these days. But but no, but like, get names. Like, those engage with those people who are going to come up and talk to you after the show. Like, you know, some, obviously a lot of artists are very, very introverted, and so the notion that they were going to have to put their lives on display freaked a lot of people out. And I don't blame them. But I do think that there is a way for, for artists to get that engagement with their people. You, you've got to have a good support team to do that unless you're not playing a bunch of shows and you just have a lot of time. And then hopefully you'll grow to a point where you can get somebody to do it. But that's, that's, that's how you sell records, at least at this Find level. Find your 10%. Yeah, we're that's still it. not getting on commercial radio. I don't, you know, that's never going to happen. So right. we got to find some way to, to sell records. Speaking of Columbus, just came from Nelsonville Music Festival, and it's pretty special in Athens there, and that was great. And it's nice to go to a panel such as this and not have to travel thousands of miles to something that might be a lot less relevant. We've all been to those panels. As this is independent labels and the associated, and you touched upon mechanicals. I'm very curious to get any of your takes on the current relevancy in 2007 of mechanical payments to writers as independent labels. And I ask this as an artist manager who is surprised to find that a lot of independent labels do not wish to pay mechanical royalties to artists. And if they do, they'll be charged back to the artist. And it's, it's sort of a bummer. <laughs> so I'd just be curious to hear what your take is and reasoning without pointing fingers. Well, here, because here's the thing. There's actually an equation, right? And there's two types of deals. There's percentage deals and, and profit shares. And indies historically have been sort of the home of the profit share 50-50 deal. In a 50-50 deal, to make the numbers work out, you must have the artists weigh mechanicals. You can't give them mechanicals and give them a 50-50 split and have it not work out that you're at, that the label is ending up making like 15%. So you, you can't actually make enough money on a deal that's split like that without the artists waving mechanicals. Because of that, a lot of indies move to the percentage model, which is traditionally the major label model, where you know the major label tries to get you to take the tiniest percentage possible, and then they charge a whole bunch of stuff on top of that. 
Yeah, it's 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 pure. It's it's just math. Yeah, it's math. And, and so you know, and I've had people being on the label side of that with a with a company that did a profit split that included the mechanicals and the artist share. You know, my argument to that is, well, we could do a thirty five sixty five split and do this, but I mean, if you want this. This is just the economics of what we can offer. It's not, you know, I've had a lot of uh, attorneys, particularly outside of the U.S., where it just baffles them that, like, well, wait a minute, you're screwing the songwriter, and I'm like, well, it's not, you know, well, that's the, an the artist distinction, the, but the every... artist is welcome to pay the songwriter for that, right? Out of their share, if that's the case. Well, it's important to remember that it's only this is only possible in the U.S. and Canada. absolutely, absolutely. The rest of the world, it is by law a payment that needs to be made. Right. It, it doesn't necessarily make it right or wrong. You're, you're, there is a law, you're right, right that right. says that. It doesn't necessarily mean that here it's like we're screwing the songwriter. My personal feeling is that, like, you know, I'm always willing to engage in those sort of conversations when I am on the label side of things, but it really is just pure economics. I'm like, okay, well, we can do this. It's just this is very foreign to our accounting systems. Right. So if we're going to do this, we're going to really have to want to sign your band to do like a 30-70 or a 35-65 split and pay mechanicals and all these other things. That's just not the way we're set up. And so in order to be on this label, there's certainly other people that do it otherwise. Sure, you know? but if it's a 50-50 profit share, right? and you're saying, oh, well, gosh, the burden is on the label to pay 100%, we'll bring it down to 75%. But it's all going to be out of the artist side, what does it matter? Whether you pay 75 or 100%, it's still all coming out of the artist side. Yes, you're carrying the risk if the album doesn't recoup, but isn't that saying, well, we don't really believe in you. You're not going to recoup, so therefore, we're only going to pay you know, a lower percentage, if anything. But the same argument could be made when you go to the majors that they don't believe in you at all because they will pay you your mechanicals, but they're going to give you 11% if they possibly can. Agreed. Minus a thousand packaging deductions. Which is why nobody should do a deal like that. <laughs> I mean, but absolutely. I, I, guess, I guess I'm just saying like that, that 75 to 100%, there is a monetary, we're talking percentages, but th th that is a monetary difference. And, and even at the independent level, most of the labels that I've worked for or speak with regularly do have a, a profit margin in mind that they're shooting for. And so I think it's purely, this is what works with what we have in mind for how much we're going to spend on the marketing, how much we're going to spend on the recording and the advance, you know, and, and, and potentially mechanicals. So it's certainly doable. I, I think a lot of times, though, you know, you're trying to put a square peg into a round hole. Right. It's like... That's just not the way we're set up. And until told legally otherwise, that's the way our, our, our business runs. But would you, know? you, would you agree that if it's being charged back to the artist 100%, if they are being paid, that it, 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 it's ir irrelevant? It's irrelevant if it's an additional advance if the, until the band is recouped. Okay. That's the way that a label would view it. It's an additional advance. This could become so boring so fast. Absolutely. But Sorry. There's such things as expenses versus payments. So sometimes if you, right, so it's like you can pay a band mechanicals on top of their portion, mm -hmm. but you can deduct it as either a payment or as an expense. Right. So if it's an expense, it's actually shared 50-50, but if it's a payment, it's all off of the artist's side. Right. And in, in the rest of the world's view, the mechanical payment is the label's overhead to the writer. So that's, that's my comment. 
This is a long topic, but Pandora, who was the initial savior of the music industry, has had the bottom fallout of their business in the last couple of days. They sold off Ticketfly, who we use here at Motorco, for half of what they purchased it for a year ago. So what's going on with Pandora? What do you guys think is the problem and or is it just, you know, one of the, the many dot coms that will go away to be filled up by Spotify or Apple Music? Well, I think I think Pandora never really made money to begin with, and they try to change that by instituting this tier system a few months ago where they had two tier two paid tier systems and one free and I don't think People aren't people aren't buying into it, and they're not paying for those paid, paid uh, tiers. So, the money that they were hoping to make isn't isn't materializing. And I think at this point that they do want to get bought by somebody else. They also went to Congress, of course, to try to lower the rate. Right. They did that, and I think the response to it was, "Your bad business model is not something that we're interested in adjusting a rate over." Is that how it went down? More or less, yeah. yeah. So their their way around that was to establish direct deals and try to become less of an internet radio service and more of a legitimate streaming DSP. The last article I read was you know eighty million listeners, which has been you know dropping every mm-hmm. year, every passing year, converted about I think less than a half a million of those into the subscription service. They acquired RDO, Ticketfly, so they just they've been spending a lot of money and not making any it, money. It's funny because what what was it? Probably around 2010 or 2009, Tim Westergren was the man of the year, Time Magazine. How the mighty have fallen, you know. How that that I think that's a lesson right there, and how quickly things can change. It's the wonderful world that we live in, music business. It's great. All right. Well, thank you guys all so much. Thank you to my panel. This is terrific, and uh, thank you to Motorco Music Hall. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Kinski, Marnie Stern, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.